Amen. Thank you very much. Appreciate that worship team. Thank you, Dan. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We want to continue looking at what the Lord has to say to us in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. It's interesting after um, going through a time of sharing in prayer to consider whether we can make the connection between what we've just done there and the passage we're looking at tonight. Because the passage we're looking at tonight is about the second coming of Christ and what happens when he comes, when he will return. And it's interesting if you uh, take a look at some of the surveys that's been done that have been done recently, um, there are all kinds of ideas about how the world is going to end. Some people think it's going to end in a global pandemic. Uh, Some think climate change is somehow going to be a part of the the end of all things. Others think nuclear war is going to be the way everything kind of comes to an end. Others, obviously with a Christian background, think about Judgment Day. Some think about a worldwide rebellion of some sort. Um, Then you get to the really unusual things like uh, zombies and alien invasions. And there are a small percentage of people that think along those lines. But there are some people that don't think it's ever going to end. The world is just going to keep going and going and going. Well, what we find here in verses 20 through 28 of 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's explanation to the question, what will happen when Christ returns? And it's related to the question of the resurrection, because Paul has been talking about the fact that there are people in the church at Corinth who are questioning whether or not there's a resurrection of the dead, and he's argued that at the heart of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ. And then he went on to say, let's think a little bit about the implication of there not being a resurrection, certainly of Christ. And he talked about that. We looked at that last week. Now he's going to move on to a kind of blow-by-blow explanation of what's going to happen uh, when Christ returns. And it's very fascinating uh, when we think about what he has to say. So let me read for us verses 20 through 28 of 1 Corinthians 15. He begins in verse 20 by saying, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also, excuse me, also will be subjected to the one 
who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So Paul is talking about the issue of the resurrection of the dead, that there is a resurrection of the dead, and we know that because Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's talking about um, the reality of this resurrection and the context for it. And so the first thing he says in verse 20 is, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. So he's going back to basically affirming what uh, has been preached in the Gospels, that Jesus lived the life we can never live, he died the death we deserve to die, and then he rose from the dead, and that resurrection was the testimony of God that God received his sacrifice on our behalf, and that Jesus was and is everything that he said he, he was. And therefore, we can trust him uh, because of that resurrection. And so he says, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now the picture of the first fruits, if you uh, remember some of the Old Testament uh, talk, where it talks about offering the first of your harvest. There was this requirement that God had for Israel that they would plant their crops, the very first of their harvest, they would take a portion of that and offer it up to God as a way of honoring God and saying to God, we thank you for providing this and we thank you for what is still yet to come. And so the offering of the first fruits was a way of acknowledging that God had given it to them and also a way of saying we trust you for more that it was the initial harvest that promised a greater harvest. And so when it talks about Jesus being the first fruits, in that picture is the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead, which means others will be raised from the dead too. Namely, all those who are in Christ. And that's when he starts talking about the fact that by man came death, which is Adam. Adam and Eve sinned, and because of their sin, Death entered into the world. That's why people die is because of sin. We're part of a fallen race. But he says, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, which is Christ. He says, as in Adam all die, all of us are, are descended from Adam, and all of us will die unless Jesus comes back first. But he says, so also... All in Christ will be made alive, which means all all those who are believing in Christ, who are in union with Christ by faith. So we are all in union with Adam by birth, but we're in union with Christ by the new birth. We're all in Adam by the fact that he is the father of the human race, but we're all in Christ through faith. We become a part of the spiritual family. And so for all those who are believing in Christ, who've been born again, we are part of Christ. And because he was raised from the dead, we have the promise that we too one day will be raised from the dead. It's interesting when you talk about the whole idea of being in Christ and being in Adam. And some people will look at that and say, well, is it really fair that we... Um, suffer the consequences of what Adam did? Is that really a fair thing or not? Well, 
If you read Romans chapter 5, you see Paul expounding on that, which he just kind of touches on in this chapter. And he basically says, the fact that we benefit from what Christ has done is the answer to our suffering the consequences of what Adam did. It's kind of like being on a team. If one of your team members um, scores a goal, the whole team scores the goal, right? Jonathan, Ethan, one guy scores, scores a goal, the whole team scores the goal, right? If one of you gets a, um, commits a foul or a penalty or something, then the whole team suffers. And so that's the picture that we have. We all suffer as a result of being in Adam, but we can be rescued from being in Adam through Christ and what he did. And so that is our hope, is in trusting in Christ and what he's done for us. It's interesting, it talks about the fact um, that the first fruits will result in the greater harvest at Christ's coming. The word for coming there is parousia, which means when he shows up. Uh, It's the idea of presence, when he makes his grand entrance, so to speak, into this world in a way that reveals all his glory. When he's revealed as the great God and Savior that he really is. And thinking about um, leaving uh, Commerce Park this week, I thought about the fact that, you know, it's kind of sad leaving this place. But the only reason it's sad is because of the presence of God there that we experience in various ways because of the people God, of God there, and because of the purpose of the building, that it was there to honor God, to worship God, to preach and teach the word. But once those things are removed, the presence of God, the people of God, the purpose for which it was, it just goes back to being a warehouse. And so there's no significance to that. That's why when the disciples asked Jesus about the temple, look at these beautiful stones, how wonderful this building is. He said, you know what, it's going to be torn down. Why? Because there's no significance in the building. It's the presence of God. It's the people of God. It's the purpose that that building's being used for. And so we may have a change in building, but there's no change in the things that are most important. And I'm thankful for that. But the presence of God is really what we're looking forward to when it talks about his coming It's talking about the fact that we're going to see him face to face and that the longings of our heart will be truly satisfied. We just get a taste in worship of the presence of God. We just get a taste of his goodness and his love. But that's all it is. It's just a taste that causes us to long to see him and to be in his presence. And one day he will come back and he will be present here uh, to fulfill all that he came to do the first time that he came. And so um, that's the first thing that Paul highlights is the whole idea of his resurrection is meant to encourage us to look forward to our resurrection from the dead as well. And the reality is, um, if we're aware at all of our sin, we're like Paul in Romans 7 when he said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This body of this sinful, 
body that's not just about the body, but it's about our connection with our fallen humanity, that one day we're going to have a glorified body that will be able to stand in the presence of God and see his face. Moses couldn't see his face, but we will be enabled to do that. And so we look forward to that, and that's what he talks about when he says in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. The resurrection, as I just said, is a a pledge and an assurance of the future resurrection of believers. The interesting thing in our society is that um, more and more people are opting for things like cremation. And I don't think cremation is inherently wrong, but I think my, my own father was cremated. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But for years, uh, Christians tended to avoid cremation because of the resurrection. Not because it was inherently wrong, but, but because they wanted to communicate something through funerals and through services. And so to see the body there and knowing that the body was going to be buried was actually meant to be a testimony to the resurrection. Now, whether you're cremated or not, God is going to put you back together. Because that body, even if it's buried, is going to decay and it's still going to need to be put back together. But for, for a long time, Christians saw um, the opportunity, even at funerals, to communicate that, you know, this isn't all there is. There's going to be something more, that this body is going to be raised from the dead. And that's why you got those stories, which I don't know if they're true or not, about people being buried with spoons because they know the dessert is coming, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so... It's a glorious thing to realize that um, Paul is encouraging the believers to keep in mind that what's going on today is at best just a taste of what God has for us. And that's why the Bible encourages us to live in light of what's coming. That our decisions today should be in light of the fact that this isn't all there is. The third thing he says is that The end is going to come. He says, when Jesus uh, raises us from the dead, uh, he says, then in verse 24 comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. And so he talks about the end. That's the telos. That's the, it's usually interpreted in terms of this is the climax to everything. This is what the whole of history has been moving toward. The return of Christ and what he's going to do when he returns. It's going to be the consummation of everything. And that's why um, C.S. Lewis at the end of the last battle, the last book in the series on the Chronicles of Narnia, said, now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story Um, no one else on earth ever read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. So when you think about that, it's talking about an end, but it's not the end altogether. It's the end that opens up the beginning of something greater, something better. And that's what 
Paul is talking about here is that there is an end to come, an end to suffering and death and sin and all the things that we grieve over and that we pray about and that we want to overcome in the beginning of everything that our heart really longs for. And so he says that is something that we should look forward to. But it's interesting, he talks about the fact that this is going to include Christ handing over the kingdom to the God and Father. Now, one of the things that's um, debated among theologians is what's going to happen at that point? Um, Is that when... There's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Uh, Others will say, um, is that preceded by a golden age on earth? Paul doesn't mention either of those things. He doesn't mention a golden age before Christ comes back. He doesn't mention a thousand-year reign after he comes back. What he does mention is that Christ is going to hand over the kingdom to the Father at that point. And the question is, what is that all about? And it's interesting if you read carefully, like in Matthew 13, if you want to look at that real quickly, Matthew 13, 36, there's a parable um, of the tares that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. Then he gives an explanation of the parable of the tares. And what he says in verse 36 is, Um, disciples ask him to explain the parable of the tares of the field and he says in verse 37 the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world and as for the good seed these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels so you've got a good um, seed planted, and then tares, which are bad seed, that were spread out among the good seed. And this is all a picture of what's going on in the world up until the return of Christ. And so he says in verse 40, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now if you notice in verse 41, he says, The Son of Man uh, will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his, the Son's, kingdom. And then in verse 43, The righteous will shine forth as a sun, not in the kingdom of the sun, but in the kingdom of their father. And so there seems to be a distinction being made. Christ is going to turn over his kingdom to the father's kingdom. And there, if you go through various scriptures, you see a reference to the sun, the kingdom of the sun in Colossians 1.13. When it says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Which means you and I are right now in the kingdom of the Son. Jesus rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. He ascended to heaven after the cross, and now he rules and reigns over everything. We were when we were saved, we were transferred from the domain of 
Satan into the kingdom of the Son, which is going on right now. And so that's why Jesus could say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's, otherwise, if it was, all my people would be fighting. And he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, which means he's ruling over everything now. And we are, as believers in Jesus, we are in the kingdom of the Son. But he taught us to pray when the disciples said, teach us to pray. When you say, when you pray, he said, pray, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We're actually praying for the kingdom of the Father to come. The Son reigns right now. He has received a kingdom. And one day he's going to hand that kingdom over to the Father. It's interesting um, the way John Calvin talks about this. He says that Christ is going to resign his kingdom when he comes back. And he will transfer it in a manner from his humanity to his glorious divinity. He's going to hand his kingdom over to the Father. Now, that's just interesting in the fact that it highlights the reality that there is a kingdom now of God as Christ the man rules and reigns over everything, but there's a kingdom not yet. And that kingdom not yet is heaven on earth. That's the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. Heaven is actually going to come to earth. There is going to be heaven on earth. And that will be the kingdom of the Father. But in order for this transfer to take place, Paul says that all rule and authority and power must be abolished. That's verse 24. Right now, Jesus rules and reigns over everything, but there is all kinds of authorities and powers and rulers that do not worship Jesus and do not exercise their authority in a way that honors him. And the Bible says that one day he's going to come back and bring all those enemy authorities, so to speak, to naught, bring them to an end, make them completely inoperative. And so the things that we might fear, um, we think about the election that's going to be happening toward the end of the year. We wonder who's going to be the next president. We wonder what's going to happen. We wonder what um, is going to be the, you know, what's going to happen in the remainder of this year, the next four years. What kind of rulers and authorities are we going to have? How difficult is it going to be to be a Christian in the future? We wonder about all those things. And we do, as, as Dan said, we pray for righteous, godly, wise, reasonable um, authorities and rulers. And the reality is, this world is always going to be filled with rulers that are in rebellion against God and want to be God themselves. Uh, Just like Francis Schaeffer said, if there is no God above the state, the state becomes God. And that's what we're experiencing. We're experiencing government that wants to be God. 
because they don't acknowledge God in any way, shape, or form. But one day, Jesus is going to return and is going to abolish all authorities like that. Calvin goes so far to say that um, he's actually going to abolish all government whatsoever. And that God is just going to rule directly. He's no longer going to rule through angels. He's no, go, no longer going to rule through men. He's going to rule more directly. Uh, how that's going to play out, I'm not sure. But that is his understanding of what is going to happen in the future. Well, the abolishment of all these governments in verse 25 is ultimately um, putting all his enemies under his feet. He says in verse 25, he must reign until or up to the point that he comes back to put all his enemies under his feet. There's a sense in which all the enemies of Christ are under his feet right now, in that he's in charge, he's in control. But there's another sense in which it means basically to subdue them completely so that they're no longer a challenge Uh, and in opposition to him whatsoever. There's an interesting parable in Luke 19. It's called the parable of the Minas, where it says in verse 11 of Luke 19, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he's talking to people that think the kingdom of God... The kingdom of heaven on earth is going to happen right away. So he tells a parable to let them know it's not going to happen right away, which is what we're experiencing. He says, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Obviously, this nobleman represents Christ. He's going to heaven, going to receive that kingdom, and then he's going to return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. The story, as the story goes, he comes back, he checks on uh, these slaves to see what they did with the minas, and he rewards those who are faithful, and he judges those who were not. And then at the end of the story, Uh, The nobleman says, but these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. And so the reality is that the gospel that we preach says, Jesus is an able and willing savior for sinners. And he offers himself to every single person and says, I am able to save you. I am willing to save you. I, I plead with you. The Bible says, Uh, And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we beg you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. And yet, if people refuse, the Savior must be a judge. Because there has to be some consequence for our sin. And Jesus says, I took that consequence, I was hit by the truck, so you would not have to be. But if you refuse to receive me, then you must be hit by the truck, like Carrie was sharing earlier. Either we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior and receive the fact that he took the punishment we deserve, 
or we have to take it ourselves. And that's what's being pictured in the parable is that to reject the rule of Christ is to reject him as Savior, to reject him as Lord, and to reject any benefit from what he's done for sinners. Well, Paul goes on to say in verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. The last enemy will be death. In fact, it says in Revelation uh, 20, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So that there's going to be an end to death and so that we as God's people will never have to fear death again. Well, let me begin to wrap this up. In verse 27, he says, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. You have to read that carefully to figure out exactly what Paul is saying there. But he's quoting from the Old Testament, and he's quoting a verse that says, God, the Father, has put all things in subjection to him, which is Jesus. And yet, if you read Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews would say, but we don't yet see all things in subjection to Jesus. All things have been put under his authority, but not all things have been completely uh, subjected to him in the sense that they no longer operate in rebellion against him. But there's going to come a point when Christ comes back when the enemies of God in Christ will no longer continue to function. Um, And everything will be put in subjection to him except God. It's kind of like right now, um, the enemies of God are like um, a rabid dog on a chain. But when Christ comes back, the rabid dog will be put down. That's, That's the serious reality of what Paul is talking about here. And so Paul is talking about the ultimate subjection uh, of all things to Christ, which for those of us who are trusting Christ, that is essential for our happiness. I mean, a lot of what we um, are grieved over and a lot of what pains us is the evil and the sin that are that we experience and that other people that we love experience. And so it's it's all a part of God loving us uh, by putting an end to all these things. Just like the story, what is uh, we told, you know, what is Jesus going to shout when he comes back? And some may say, enough. Enough evil, enough abuse, enough anger and meanness and harshness and all kinds of things that make life so, um, for some people, so unbearable. Enough is going to be brought to an end, and that's the purpose of Jesus' return. Interestingly enough, he goes on to say in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who's objected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Some people read that and think that sounds like um, the son is somehow less than God, the father. 
because the son is going to subject himself to the father. But the best way to understand that is to think not in terms of the um, divine nature of Christ, but the human nature of Christ. And so it says in the Old Testament in Psalm 8 that there's a sense in which when God created Adam, he created Adam to be um, a vice regent, a co-ruler over creation. He failed in that he rebelled, rebelled. Jesus comes and he, as a man, is fulfilling that calling and ruling over everything. But when he comes back as a man, the God-man, he's going to bring a consummation to all that he's done as a man. And in that sense, he will hand over the kingdom and he will subject himself to God the Father as the man, Christ Jesus, not as God. Because we know in Revelation 22, it tells us about the new heavens and the new earth. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. That's one throne with God the Father and the Lamb on it. So they're going to reign and rule over everything together, so to speak. So it's not that kind of subjection, but it's the subjection of the, the consummation of all that he's done for us is going to be submitted to God um, at that point. Well, The last thing he says is, God will be all in all. Calvin says about that, Paul's words mean nothing but this, that all things will be brought back to God as their alone beginning and end, that they may be closely bound to him. Another way of putting that, I think, is simply to say, God rules and reigns over everything, but There are all kinds of things that are out of sync with God, that are in opposition to God, that are in rebellion against God. And when Christ comes back, everything is going to be made right. Everything is going to be in proper relationship to God. And all of us who groan at the fact that we don't love like we should, we don't love God as we should, we don't love other people as we should, And we cry out, just like Paul, O wretched man that I am, help me. One day, there will be nothing in in us that will hinder us from worshiping God. There will be nothing in us that will hinder us from loving God. We will love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And everything we do will be in perfect union with God. And we will know a fellowship with God that we can't even imagine at this point. We will have an intimacy with God that will be unbelievable. It will be truly satisfying in every way possible. And so let me just wrap this up. So what is this calling us to do? It's calling us to believe that there's life after death, that this isn't all there is. It's calling us to believe that Jesus is the key to the kind of life we really want after death. It calls us to believe that Jesus is returning and there is an end to sin and that there will be the beginning of all that we desire. 
It calls us to believe that Jesus is ruling and reigning over his enemies now and one day will bring them to an end. It calls us to believe that we don't have to be afraid of death because Jesus will bring an end to it for his people. And it calls us to believe that one day our experience of God through Christ will be such that he will be everything to us and we will find the deepest needs of our heart met in every way. And so, practically, what should we do? Well, obviously, the first thing, if we really consider what Paul is saying there is, he's saying that there are those who are friends of God and those who are enemies of God. And what we want to make sure is that we're not an enemy of God. And the enemies of God are those who reject his rule, that refuse to receive Jesus for who he is. But Jesus came that we might be reconciled to God. It says in Romans 5, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on to say, Much more than having now been justified by the blood of Christ, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we have been saved by his life. What does it take to be reconciled to God? Basically two things. We have to turn away from thinking that we're righteous enough on our own. We have to turn away from self-righteousness. And we have to turn away from self-rule. It says, no, I think I want to still be in charge of my life. It basically means I have to trust that Jesus is sufficient to take care of my guilt problem and that he's also sufficient to take care of my good problem. My guilt problem is my sin against God and what it deserves My good problem is I'm looking for what will satisfy my soul. And Jesus says, I'll take care of both those. I'll take care of your guilt and I'll take care of your good. I'll make sure that you're forgiven of your sins and I'll make sure that you have everything that will satisfy your soul so that I call you to trust me to love you. I call you to trust me to love you perfectly. And all those who receive Jesus and trust him to love them perfectly, I guarantee you, he will love you perfectly forever and ever and ever. The Bible says that all those who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. If we come to him in light of our guilt, if we come to him in light of our desire for good and submit ourselves to him, he will gladly receive us because that's why he came in the first place is to be that kind of savior for sinners. The next thing is for us as Christians is to seek the kingdom of God, to realize that your spouse is not going to satisfy your soul. Your children aren't going to satisfy your soul. Your parents aren't going to satisfy your soul. Your job's not going to satisfy your soul. There's nothing in this world that's going to satisfy your soul. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because... The kingdom of God that's to come is the only thing that will satisfy our souls. And when I set my hope completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ and all that he's going to do when he comes back, then it frees me to just love my spouse the way they are. 
to love my children the way they are, to love my fellow co-workers the way they are, and not to try to expect them or anybody else to satisfy my soul and, and make this world paradise when it's not. One day it will be. And so God says, set your, set your hope on me and love the people around you. And so that's why I say, what you think about what is going to happen in the future is going to determine how you treat people today. It will help you in loving them. And finally, the Bible says, be faithful to the end. Wait on the Lord to make everything right. Wait on the Lord to make everything right. One day things will be made right. The Bible tells us that one key thing to forgiving people and not taking revenge is, be, is believing that Jesus will come back and he will make everything right. It's not my job to take revenge. It's not my job to pay people back for what they've done to me. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. My responsibility is to love them and pray that God would have mercy on them and trust that if they reject him, God will take care of the justice part. I don't have to. There's a lot more that can be said about that, but there's a reason why we have what we have here with regard to what is to come. It is to free us to trust that God is up to good things, even through this fallen world, even through the sin and the evil that we're experiencing right now. That's not the final chapter. There is a great story that it has not begun yet. And so we're not to lose heart. We need to keep trusting in the love of God for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to think about what Paul says here. There's so much in this passage, and we've gone through it very quickly, but help us not to miss the application for our own lives. Help us to see Jesus as an able and willing Savior for us, and to entrust ourselves to him if we have not yet done that yet, to trust him for perfect love, to trust him to deal with our guilt, to trust him to fulfill our desire for good, and to believe that he longs to meet our need and to satisfy our souls. Please help us as your children to trust you for what is to come, that we might trust you for what we need today. And that we might be free to love those around us in greater, deeper, richer ways. Help us to trust that you will make all things right. Please meet our needs. Speak to our hearts wherever we are tonight. And grant us grace for the week ahead. Prepare us now as we uh, honor you through the Lord's Supper. Help us to truly remember that it all flows out of what you've done for us on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please join us as we worship him through the Lord's Supper now.